Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to a new Redefining Technology podcast. Standing on two feet, having dexterous hands, developing a language that allows us to communicate, and the ability to understand abstract concepts. These are all part of the equation of humanity. Still, it is the capacity to create tools and advance the technology that has allowed us to thrive on this planet and maybe on others. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. On. Are you sitting at your uh, classroom desk? I am at my classroom desk. I yeah. never gave it up. It's still the same when I was five years old. I'm kind of a right. little tight yeah, now. I think I think the, the classroom desk hasn't changed much. I don't know. I haven't been, been in that kind of classroom in a long time, but I presume they look the same for the most part. And I, and I was thinking that there's a lot of change in, in the world from a business perspective. One, one topic is like the great resignation. Kids don't have that option. They just get to go to school, period. There's <laughs> no resigning from from school and learning. So it's probably best to make the most of it while you're there. Right? Whatever desk. That, that's, that's true. There is a re- the great resignation and there is the, the digital transformation. And there is a lot of buzzwords out there that I think in the end, they all come down to telling us that we need to give a, put a label a simple label to something that is very complex, which is changes in our society. And I think we can agree, as you said, you know, yeah, maybe the school desk is the same. There is a chair, but I'm hoping there is a computer somewhere near that, <laughs> maybe right. a tablet, <laughs> you know, because the otherwise we'd be like, it's like getting a time machine, go to school and then walk outside of school and get your tablet. So where, where is the <laughs> Where is the connection? And that puts yourself in the, in the business that is evolving constantly. So but if you're, with this, you're learning, if you're learning for the sake of learning versus learning to actually do something meaningful, um, I think that's where the real value comes and the real power comes. And, and for this channel, we talk about that in the context of technology. Do we innovate for the sake of innovating or do we do it for uh, the greater good, a, a greater purpose? Right, Marco? Yeah. And, uh, that's the core of the conversation and around that core we can look at so many different perspectives and we do sometimes it's healthcare some other times is entertainment some other times is business and cybersecurity of course that's that's your thing Sean uh, today we're looking at something that 
I found it interesting, and we invited our friend Alejandro here to uh, explain what is his vision on how you can adapt maybe learning business and uh, and the technology tools that have been given to us. So again, Sean, two minute and 37 seconds of blabbering here. So let's go ahead and introduce our guest. Alejandro, thank you so much for joining us. What a pleasure to be here. We're already arguing yet? about school desks and tech for <laughs> the greater good. So we're going to have a good time. That's right. Do you, do you carve on your school desk, Caliandro? I actually had a piece of green paper. So, yes, there are murals on the walls of the apartment <laughs> where I grew up, not far across the park from where you are, Sean. But I had a piece of green paper hanging from my desk lamp from the age I was maybe 12. Um, and it said something that made me think an interesting place to start could be a great debate. And I can do this debate in 120 seconds. You're four uh, participants. Unfortunately, it's three of them are guys, but, but we can repair that later in the podcast are Al Einstein, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Sherry Turkle. Now, let's actually go out of order. Let's start with Gates. Gates claims that the internet was invented. Everything we're talking about here was invented because nerds were lazy. So I'm an inveterate nerd, right? And we were lazy, so we didn't want to do the repetitive stuff. So we made all this up. Great. Sherry Turkle comes back and says the following, and this is from Matthew Barzun's book, The Power of Giving Away Power. She says, technology has given us independence, freedom from hassles and wires and other people's choices and more efficient lives. Essentially, it's done what Bill Gates wanted to do and those other nerds. And then she goes on, but it has largely broken its promise to give us freedom with one another to build big things together. And that's where everything that gets me up in the morning and puts me to bed at night um, and the whole team at Rebel Base and Beyond, that's what we're about. The freedom with another to build big things together. And I think of digital tech as a largely unexploited good, meaning we're at the beginning that advantage. Okay, third participant in our debate is uh, good old Al Einstein. Now, Einstein, I had to mention this because of what you said, Sean. He says the following, and to me, it's, it's directly related to this question of what we're using tech for. But everyone who's listening, I want you to think how it might be related, because it's not something that might be obvious in the first two seconds. Einstein, whom, as you know, couldn't get a job as a high school teacher, despite submitting the original in Germany, the original uh, theory of relativity with his high school teaching application. I'm not kidding. He says it is, in fact, nothing short of a miracle that mo the modern methods of instruction have not yet entirely strangled the holy curiosity of inquiry, the holy curiosity of inquiry for this delicate little plant, aside from stimulation, stands mainly in need of freedom. Without this, it goes to rack and ruin without fail. Notice that we've gone from the freedom to be lazy, Bill Gates, to the freedom to build big things together, Sherry Turkle, to the freedom to inquire uh, what he calls the enjoyment of seeing and searching. And now I'm going to go full stop to, to the big disruption that is only possible in our time. And Steve Jobs, at the moment, he's been fired from Apple. There's a grainy video from the Santa Clara Valley Historical Association. You can find it online. And they ask him, they say, Mr. Jobs, what's the most important thing? And he says, and I quote, 
the it's the moment when you realize that everything around you that you call life was made up by people no smarter than you are and you can change it and he goes on to say that if you just bounce around and don't change it it's a very limited life so when you put those four together Gates with his freedom to be lazy, Turkle with her freedom to build big things together, Einstein with his freedom of inquiry, and Jobs with the freedom to remake the world, we're in a very interesting moment because I would argue that the opportunity to remake our world, despite everything you read in the news, is more widespread than it has ever been in history. Wow. One of, one of my big fears when we talk about the future and things like uh, AI and machine learning and quantum computing, things that, that can take and do things on our behalf is that they are driven by rules that then limit what's possible. So we, we end up in a box defined by one or uh, a, few pe a few people, probably rich and powerful people, uh, that then limits our ability to to do uh, bigger and better things. And so I like what you, what you brought with, with Steve Jobs and that we all have a role to play. Uh, to... If we... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Sean. I, I'm a native New Yorker who misinterpreted that as a pause. They <laughs> say pause. we think a nano pause is a real pause. That so you finish and then in. I'll jump in with this. Uh, just, that, uh, just that we, if, if we're not participating, we'll end up with whatever we get. And I've, I feel that if we're not all participating, that will limit what we really want. Have you ever been to we'll an we'll AI stuck, dinner? We'll be stuck with a common common denominator that sucks. <laughs> I've not been to an AI dinner. What is it? So it shows in real time the common denominator that sucks. Here's how it works. Someone agrees to play AI. And we teach, in this case, her what the rules are. And then she follows our rules. And guess what? She follows some, all our heuristics and biases. Right? It's been well demonstrated. AI tends to be racist. <laughs> Why? Because we taught it to be. It didn't start out that way, except you know, maybe in the sense of the Cylons hate the skin jobs, right? That's a Battlestar Galactica reference for those of you who aren't as nerdy as I am. Um, the, there's a, a hilarious episode of Portlandia where they're so into Battlestar Galactica, the remake, that they get Edward James almost to watch with them. And he's like, you guys are crazy. This show is not that interesting. <laughs> anyway, I just wanted to mention that as the AI dinner teaches us, we are inevitably about to be in a reality where AI does things that we're not used to expecting it to do. If you've recently been chauffeured by a machine or received an email written by artificial intelligence or even a bot, you are dealing with the fact, and it is a fact, that many, uh, much of the work we do today, in fact, anything algorithmic and repeatable, and it doesn't matter, blue collar, white collar, Andrew Young does a very good job of diagnosing this, though I'm not uh, entirely in agreement with his prescriptions. Those things in our own jobs, everything we're used to is on its way out. So what we think of as the jobs that are normal are already the milkman and the telegraph uh, operator the milkman and the telegraph operator, and it gets worse. We're about to see ghost industries. And what we tell AI to do will both set the way our world works and what we tell teach ourselves to do will determine whether we have a place 
with quality jobs and the purpose that gives us in that world. So, yeah, I think it's about what what you want to do with that. And again, this is the big question. And and I like the way you presented the different point because it started with a very basic uh, human trait, which is being lazy or at least don't get, you know, overworked. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Or, or we just want to do things better. So I'm thinking... Technology is, we all often refer to this, is, is a hammer and a nail. It's a, it's a saw. It's anything that allows us to extend our humanity by using the tools that we built. And so I like to think of that as an augmented humanity. And But then what do you do with that? Are you just going to invent the machine and then you just, I don't know, I'm thinking like the the Orwell time machine where then everybody just do nothing, right? Or are we actually using that free time and that better being uh, condition that we create to do something better with that? And that's where the human condition, I think, can come in. So you've now you're, you're getting me to go philosophical. So let's go with it. Marco, you've deepened this because advanced machine learning doesn't just follow our rules, right? It discovers rules. So we're not quite in the world of that AI dinner anymore already. And so when we're in a world where it's discovering rules, what's happening? It still is optimizing for what we told it to optimize for. So if you have a, a writing checker, and it's discovering that there are better ways to make writing more comprehensible that we as human beings don't know because we can't do math that big very easily in our brains. We can barely do it at all, right? Then it's figuring out things we don't know, but it's still driving, per Sean's original point, to the variables we optimize for, right? And so in the end, if we are failing to do what Turkle and Jobs talked about, right, which is ourselves become folks that think of the way the world should be. I'm going to add one more voice to this little debate who says almost the same thing Job says, but he applies it to questions of sustainability, and it's Bernard Leterre. And he says we have this odd tendency to create a world, forget that we have created it, and then throw up our hands and proclaim the, our inability to make a difference, but it is our creation constantly evolving. Now add the momentum of AI to that, right? Of advanced machine learning to that. It's still a world we're constantly creating, but we need to get better at reinventing it constantly, or we will have machines to, that optimize to what we thought was important yesterday. And the best way to lose touch with your values is to hard code them because values worth having are negotiated, they're contested, they're constantly changing the form they take in order to retain what they, at essence, mean to us. So what is the role of technology? And I, I hesitate, but I'm going to add it to it, the mix anyway. Technology and data <laughs> to as tools for humans to actually find a path forward that they really want to, to move toward. I'm really glad you take it there, Sean, because we're at a, a threshold. We're, we're at a fork in the road. Right now, most of big data is used so that we're the rats in the experiment. 
to be frank. And this is, I can give you a lot to support this point, but I'm just gonna make it in general. Unless we turn ourselves in the, into the experimenter, unless we use technology to enable your average young person to be in a position to create her own experiments and revise them using data, game over. I presume you have some examples of what that might look like. <laughs> I do. Let's Please, start sure. with a fun one. Yeah. Um, there's a certain failing 20th century incumbent. It's a, it's a steel company. No, it's been renamed Meta in the attempt to give it some life past its natural life. All right. So Facebook is just a utility, right? It is no longer an innovative firm. It's, it's AT&T and Needy's. Um, but my proudest moment of the entire last two years was when Dalian Najjar, who um, uses Rebel Base with entrepreneurs and innovators in Jerusalem, called me and said, you know, I just got this message from my student. She called me on WhatsApp. So, you know, but acquisition is a powerful thing. She calls me and she says, my student said the following, and I quote, I used to be, the first thing that used to be open on my machine every day was Facebook. Now it's rebel base. And at least I feel I'm doing something productive, but stop there for a second, right? The alternatives technology gives us today are complain and troll, consume, more and more, or just compare notes with about the things we're consuming, or maybe try to get the powers that be to do something. None of those are adequate alternatives, right? We need to use technology to do what that student was talking about, because the internet used well as a tesseract, not the one that you know, Matthew McConaughey or your favorite car uh, actor playing a character from A Wrinkle in Time used to travel through space and time. It's a tesseract because in the classic formulation from A Wrinkle in Time, it, where an ant's walking across a skirt and you fold the skirt and it's a short trip, for the first time in history, we can be anywhere in the world having this conversation. And that's an extraordinarily powerful thing because think of some movie or literature. It was always about getting to London, getting to New York, whatever it was, right? Now it's getting to a broadband connection for sure, which not everybody has this, but we use Rebel Base in refugee camps. So my point is this, that we need to connect people who can, for the first time, use this technology to collaborate with one another to create their own experiments with the structure and the tools. And here's the point of all this, to make them producers and not consumers. And this isn't crazy if you think about the fact that my 15-year-old niece does on a smartphone what in my first company that failed in the Great Recession, took us years and hundreds of thousands to build into our own media studio. You know, Marco, you have the cool microphone, microphone boom. But seriously, we, <laughs> Marco's swinging his mic back and forth, everyone, in, <laughs> in uh, curlicues and fractals. It's pretty amazing for those who can't see. It's, his just, it's just some um, kind of levers. I would say I, you know, Socrates would have probably think this up. <laughs> Not very Socrates at least knows very, that very he minor. knows nothing. <laughs> exactly. But my niece might know that she knows nothing, but let, let's talk about Socrates for a second. Socrates believed that, uh, okay, of course, Plato wrote this, right? Plato attributed to Socrates the idea, if you remember the early dialogues, that 
if you were a slave, right there, you had the idea, you had math in your mind already. And learning was a matter of discovering that math, right? So my 15 year old niece edits better video than my whole company could back in the day on her phone. What we absolutely have the capacity to do and what we've built at Rebel Base is the capacity to show you as you do it, how to build new things in the world, whether that's a venture or, a, or, or you're taking your company and greening its supply chain or going to circular models, or it's something in your community. In any of the above cases, the main thing we need to replace the world with what should exist or what we think should exist and put that back in our hands is the chance to do it. We need, we're like superheroes, as I once said in a TED talk, who need to, first of all, discover our powers, right? Every story about magic or sword and sorcery or superpowers, they got to discover the powers. Then they need lots of chance to learn to use them. There's only way to learn, one way to learn to use them together and do it with an alliance or with a fellowship or whatever. Pick your favorite story. We need to use them together. And so we need technology, not just to give the usual suspects sitting some Silicon Valley bros the chance to make something that they think is important because, and I'll tell you a funny story about that if you want in a minute, that's likely to be something that is important to a Silicon Valley bro who's pretty freaking out of touch with the real problems we all have. But if you instead equip people close to problems to create what they think could solve them, then we revolutionize everything. Well, he was, sorry, Sean, he was yeah. solving his problem. Sean was. I mean, no. <laughs> I never solve any the, problems. I always the, train him. The, the meta guy. <laughs> The meta yes, guy right. created that company. He, exactly. And it was probably successful. And then he found himself in a, in a gold mine. But he, I think the intention wasn't maybe the, the most ethical <laughs> one for the future of humanity. Let's put it this way. Sean, sorry. I, I yeah. Well, to... uh, and it may touch on your last point there, Marco. Um, what I'm about to ask Alejandro is that because you, 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 painted the picture with the uh, the ant and the skirt and the folding and and trimming that that journey right and I, and my question is innovation and transformation oftentimes yes you might find scalability uh, in there but it's oftentimes about time to market reducing uh, the the amount of time to do things and I guess what I'm wondering is it seems like all of our effort and innovation is to shorten, make things smaller, make them shorter, uh, perhaps reduce the cost. Uh, but, but maybe that's not always the case. Uh, some of the most advanced technologies still are uh, una unattainable for, for many, right? Unless you, you have the funds to, to, to access them. I guess my point is, are, are we forgetting the journey? as we're innovating and is that important an important part of what technology can help us with or or are we just so focused on reducing the time between a and b whatever 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 problem is we're trying to solve is if we can if we can solve it faster that's better <laughs> right now yeah. sean we are forgetting the journey but that's only because the people that created what we got now forgot where they came from hp really was created in a one-car garage in a part of California that was agricultural. 
at the time. We've only come to think of it as a tech center. You had to go to New York to get jobs, right? Um, but there's a more important point than that that's built into what you said when you use the word scalability. The version of scalability that you hear VCs talk, talk about today is an old-fashioned and I would argue anachronistic idea of scalability. They're still wishing that everything worked the way traditional software works. Do you remember the days when you used to go out and buy the next version of Microsoft, speaking of Bill Gates, and it was worse? It was so annoying. There was a paperclip, and even not the paperclip, the most obvious one. It was so annoying, right? And then, of course, look, I run a SaaS company. Don't get me wrong. I love that kind of scalability in its way um, because, indeed, I want to make sure that you're sitting in any classroom cubicle or community thinking this is backwards. And instead of having to complain about it or suggestion box it or settle for it and join it, you can launch your own experiment in something that actually makes some sense. So that's what I do, right? That's rebel based, but we need to re-envision scalability. So let's talk about that for one second, because this is important. All right. Michael Schumann um, at the Bard MBA and sustainability says no more should we be taking a cookie cutter model and just imposing it all over the world? That's how we still think. The funders still think that way. Moreover, no more should we be always having to fund a unicorn. You know what happens when you're always trying to fund a unicorn? You get- All the horses die. Pick your favorite. You get Elizabeth <laughs> Holmes, you get Adam. Right. You get, shall I go on, right? you get that because you're pushing so hard for this huge win, all right? And what I'm not saying is that there's no place for VC. What I am saying is that if we actually want things to get interesting, we need to pick up on the idea of reverse innovation from Govindarajan and Trimble at Tuck, which we need to rename. Um, as Barzun says, it's not, it, it's, he wants to rename bottom up, right? These things aren't reverse and they're not bottom up. It's the way innovation has always happened. We talked about Steve Jobs. You know how he got the, into technology? Speaking of HP, he was 14 years old. He called Bill Hewitt from Hewitt Packer, Bill Hewitt, up on the phone. I, I knew a guy named Bill Hewitt when I was a kid, so that, that got all messed up. He called Bill Hewlett on the phone and said, can I get a job at your company? And got a job. He looked up his phone number working on the uh, some chip assembly line or something like that, right? So we need to reopen that because when we get into this era where it's all about speed, it's all about the advantages you always have, and it's all about, guess what we're heading into? The world where incumbents dominate. And as soon as you have a world where incumbents dominate, guess what? Economic dynamism goes through the toilet, which is where it's gone in the United States. It was a slight blip during the, during the pandemic for 40 years. All right. Well worth looking up John Letary's data with Economic Innovation Group if you haven't. But dynamism goes through the floor. Now, there is an alternative. And what Michael Schumann's talking about, and there's a Polish entrepreneur, Kali Wilk, who is an alternative, which is that we find a model that works somewhere. And guess what? We use digital collaboration to replicate that model. It doesn't always have to be a cookie cutter solution that I put out everywhere and, you know, cha-ching that cash register every time it happens. Instead, there are multiple ways. And we're actually building something at Robase called Base Stories, which is an answer to case studies. It's an answer to that canned Harvard case, which is full of lies. First of all, it's oversimplified every single time. And I've had cases written about my companies. Instead, it's got to be an evolving story. It's got to be dynamic and happening with connections being made using the full potential of the internets, if you will.
So um, I want to attach to that. And for me and Sean, of course, we got there many times is, again, what drives what? So I, I agree with you. I think, you know, um, I read the biography of Steve Jobs and, you know, you may think him as a, you know, a little bit of a weirdo, but don't they all the best of us are? <laughs> Not that I am like Steve Jobs, but I mean, like in, in as a humanity, I refer. Marco, I yeah. don't hang out with people who aren't weird, just so you know. If you're not pretty weird, <laughs> seriously, what's, because being weird is just that you're nerding out on something. Be, before we hit recording, out. tell me again about the scale <laughs> of weirdness that must be at least six or seven. Who, what was that quote that you said? So the great Tony Shea, who, not that I'm into getting all your shoes delivered. And I actually had a real student, sorry, this is the fun version of the story, who I was teaching a course on digital innovation at Baruch, uh, which is CUNY's business school. It's a public business school, the best one in New York. And the student, I, I put out the question, I said, who's become a, uh, into Zappos? And this student who is a dancer in the Rockettes, as in the very old school, but very disciplined dancer, who literally stopped spending money on restaurants because she has more disposable income than the average Brooke undergraduate and had like, I don't even want to know how many pairs of shoes, but it's more than I've had in my lifetime, right? So with that having been said from a sustainability point of view, that we really only need one or two pairs of shoes, thank you. Here's what Tony Shea did. So Tony Shea brilliantly, it's worth looking up, and I won't go through them all, Zappos Cultural Values. Zappos was eventually acquired by Amazon in a story I won't get into because it's long. But he developed this set of cultural values. And one of them was that to work at Zappos, you had to be a certain amount of weird. And he made it a scale from one to 10, because of course, weirdness is just one thing. You just take the temperature of weird. That's a joke. But seriously, he said to work at Zappos, to work at Wackos, right? Seriously, you hear the Freudian slip there? <laughs> to work at Zappos, you had to be about a six or a seven. That was the optimal weirdness level. You know, And they would take people's weirdness when they walked in. They should have marketed that technology, right? I want that. I'm only going to let tens in. But seriously, they would say that if you were less than a six, you you weren't quirky enough to succeed in their culture. But above that, you might be a little too weird to, to work at Zappos. But of course we know, and I, if I didn't end on this, I would be a bad nerd. We know that there's many kinds of weirdness, right? Intelligence yeah, well, is I was gonna thing. say that. Neither is yes. weirdness. Yeah, it's yep. whether you're good weird and in which way. And let's yeah, give people please. channels to be good weird. Honestly, when you read the news every day, sorry, Marco, <laughs> and you hear all these people taking out their weirdness in all these destructive ways, I believe that those are the people that could have made something and would given half the chance to build something with the ways they were weird. And I, I yeah. really mean the guys in the trench coats. Give that mm -hmm. man a chance to make something weird. I really mean the terrorist bombers. Give those people a chance to build something. We could actually have different outcomes than we're getting today. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, 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 there is a thin line between weird and genius. And I think many times they just, you know, cross each other. But because it's about innovating. But right. I mean, I, the, I, I see the message, you know, with the Zappo uh, culture, like you need to be a little bit out there. You need to search for change. You need to be looking at a problem and say, well, that's the the usual box, I'm going to think outside the box. I don't want to go in another area and be crazy, but I should be weird enough. Right? So I totally agree with that. But I think- Wait, let me just, You know what's cool about being weird? Is, is it, it throws you off for a second, right? When 
<laughs> if, if it's weird from what you what you think, it, it makes you think differently. It's yeah. like, oh, You're like what, why? Wait a minute. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. see where that's coming from. That's oh. that's really wild. You're so good. So, this is it. So I live in the woods, right? And sometimes in New York. And if not Spain or Turkey, but that's another story for that. I live in the woods. And being not weird is just walking down the established trails. <laughs> being really weird is bushwhacking never on a trail, right? And if we use our brains only in the established trails, guess what? We're bored out of our minds. Here's the definition of weirdness for you. It's doing things that don't bore you. And Kingsley Amos, the British humorist, had a very funny bit in his first novel where he's the, the, the mentor character says, look, Jim, you got to just accept you got to be bored a few hours a day. And I, I really internalize that. If I'm bored much of my waking hours, like most of us, when we're renting out our days to some decrepit incumbent solution that we call a company, we lose it. We lose our ability to do that thing Einstein talked about, to search and inquire. And he said, if you fed a wild beast, force fed it, it would lose its appetite. But if we have just a few few hours of boredom, enough to be real people, not just pipe dreaming, and the rest of the time being weird, then we're on to something. Now, I don't want to add 20 points in a row. I've only added 18, so I'm going to stop here. But I do want to, if you want later, talk about Barabashi's data and what that says about the difference between weird and genius, because I'm not sure it's what we think it is. Well, maybe we finish with that, but uh, and I feel like with you, it seems pretty obvious that we could be talking forever because we can jump from one thing to another. I would That's like just, to. This is the 10 one, hour podcast we're on. Right? This, this, this is, is a marathon. Hour podcast. It's this like a Fidel a Castro radio speech, <laughs> which you had to listen to. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, we're going to take an advertisement break soon. Now, uh, I want to talk about it. The, the democratization of innovation. And, and I think is the core of our conversation. So we talk about being weird, being creative, giving the tool knowledge is power. Sean and I say that all the time. But you, so knowledge is the tool that you can use to change the world. But nowadays, you, and the data. you said, you know, well, the data, but the data come from technology. So we have technology, we have this maybe great uh, uh i don't know it, it kind of brings the possibility to the table to distribute a tool to everyone that can learn how to use it and then with that being a visionary create a business create a future and again we have the technology now to do that so how do we give it to everyone? And how do we resolve that gap that, let's say, people that didn't jump on the technology train in the 80s, maybe, or 90s, the early commercial internet, they found themselves to be like, no, it's too late for me. I, I don't know how to use this stuff. Um, I just lost the train. And then I'm going to live in the past because I can't use technology. Well, Marco, the thing is that the internet was a small disruption, honestly, in terms of the disruptions coming. We started this conversation with AI. We're entering that world where things are going to be so different. We're going to make the shift to green because we have to. 30 trillion invested already into ESG, but we, we simply are going to stop taking the fossil fuels out of the ground. I get it. We're, we're dealing with 5 trillion in subsidies for that industry, but 
those subsidies can only block us so long for being human and being resilient and actually doing things right. So the entire economy is going to re get reinvented and it's not even there. We, we're not going to be working in offices and sitting in classrooms anymore. I don't care what Elon Musk says when he want, wants to fire people, right? Like Elon Musk you know, said, you got to go back to Tesla hoping people would quit. We are going to be using this stuff and we'll resist it. And I could go on, I could talk about the great resignation, but let me not do that. Let me instead go to something that I think is extremely important. There's a very old essay from T.S. Eliot about Hamlet. And it's going to speak to this question, I think, in a very meaningful way. All right? He talks about, he says this, in the character Hamlet, right, one of the greatest plays in the English language, in my opinion, it is the buffoonery of an emotion which can find no outlet in action. In the dramatist, it is the buffoonery of an emotion which he cannot express in art. And let's broaden art to be any constructive activity. Then he goes on to say, the intense feeling, ecstatic or terrible, without an object or exceeding its object, is something which every person of sensibility has known. It is doubtless a study to pathologists. I'm going to go on one more line. It often occurs in adolescence, right? That's that teen rebel. The ordinary person puts these feelings, that was not Elliot talking about team rebels, puts these feelings to sleep soon afterwards, I added soon afterwards, or trims down his feeling to fit the business world. The artist keeps it alive by his ability to intensify the world to his emotions. Now, what we're really talking about is when I have those, and most of us do, right? Lee Kim, who organized those AI dinners, talks about how kids young children, being imaginative is not something they have to learn. It's something they have to unlearn, right? So we get that beaten out of us. Now, bear with me for two more seconds, okay? So Elliot and that passions we all have, we trim them down to fit the world of being normal, right? Or worse, we express them in destructive ways unless we have the chance to express them, if you're Shakespeare through writing plays, if you're many of us through so many activities, creating a new product at your company that will save it in three years when it's disrupted and uh, so it doesn't become an empty business park, doing a startup, creating an initiative in your community, starting something at your school, any of these things take practice to get good at. They, and and the, you know, I, I talk a lot about realizing we can reimagine the world, but the more important part of this process is learning how hard that is. And that's actually what we do all around the world. 13 countries, just this early stage, 3,500 people, but it's going to be hundreds of thousands of people soon. They get the experience of saying, oh, I imagine the world differently. Now, let me figure out if someone would use this the way I designed it. How do I need to change that? Now, let me figure out if this can pay for itself or I can get somebody to, to invest in it. Now, let me figure out if this can generate the impact or the return. Now, let me feel, figure out if this can displace the incumbent despite all their, their advantages. I'll stop there because I could get very wonky, but it's the experience of learning how hard it is to reimagine the world that paradoxically is what gets those users all around the world to tell us that this experience transforms them. And all of those nows, you have to start with the first one. And I feel that, that there's a, the first one is missing somewhere. <laughs> and perhaps, perhaps it's in the learning system uh, the educational system. Uh, Marco likes to say, "Who's educating the educators?" Um, and talk John, about what's the first one. Sorry, I have no. I idea don't know. Of the last I don't time. know. Oh, you just said it now. 
once they once they can begin thinking in a different yeah. way now i can do the now i can do but i that, can tell you that, what it is but you go on you first I, i'm just wondering if if it's if we're lacking the the openness to give students the freedom <laughs> to think we, that way or are we boxing them in where it, we're going to produce the same thing over and over and over in our students and end up with the same results in our society. Sean, you're so good. So we are doing what you're worried we're doing, right? What we think of as education is a joke. You sit in somewhere, listen to an old man talk about the way things used to work and then get a job for something that's already broken and on its way out and only still exists because we're protecting it with massive subsidies globally or market power, right? We are educating people to walk out into the world with both hands tied behind their backs. And the young often know this. Here's the good news. They often know that we're bullshitting them. Many of them will, of course, we need a job and we've made life really hard for the young because once you graduate from your trade school or your college or whatever, however you're prepared, guess what you've got? Um, rent's so high you can't live in a major city. You've got educational debt typically, uh, at least in the United States, which, you, which is, is burdensome. You've got healthcare costs you can't afford. Guess what we just made you? Risk averse. And as soon as we make you risk averse, you will never build the muscles we're talking about. So Sean, it's worse than you think. And what's really bad about it is that educators are so locked into this stuff right? Try talking. Because they need the a job too. <laughs> they do, right. But they're very much like, you know, pick your disruptive thing like guilds or oh, they really are like guilds, right? If you actually have experience in the world, first of all, you'll be an adjunct professor most of the time, right? Secondly, who makes the buying decisions? It's someone in an IT department with every, every incentive to centralize and make everything work top down, right? And I could go on and on. We award people credits. Are we joking? On the bright side, look, we just Open Society University Network just approved a new certificate program, which I co-created with Even Goodstein and Hunter Lovins and Aurora Winslade and others. And this program, um, Tomas Mora, Tuba, I could go on, Eliza Edge. This program challenges people. The first course we piloted was social entrepreneurship, solve a problem the way we're talking about on Rebel Base. The second course we piloted is entrepreneurship leading change. That's led by Aurora Winslade, the head of sustainability at Stanford, also on Rebel Base. The third we're launching this spring is with Hunter Lovins. And guess what the deliverable is expected to be? We're going to make it to interview someone who's actually made that change. Take their story and create not a case study, but a base story where there's a webinar with them. There's real information about why it was hard in their part of the world. So if I figured out how to make water potable in Managua and you're sitting in Dhaka or vice versa, if you figured out how to make rickshaw batteries sustainable so that the rickshaw driver, the way Sebastian Groh, who teaches on this platform in Dhaka has done, doesn't run out the loan faster than the life of the battery while destroying the air and, and with these batteries using conflict minerals and all that. If you figure it out a better way, we're going to make sure there's a base story about that and that that's interactive and that people elsewhere in the world can connect with it. Because often when I've developed something, I don't really, if you know what really entrepreneur, motivates entrepreneurs, it's to make something better. The neoliberal idea that we were all living for quarterly results was always a lie. It's a lie made up by classroom economists. What really motivates us, and read any Jim Collins book, you'll see this in five seconds, is the desire to build something. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify. Some of us are motivated by solving different kinds of problems and curiosity and blah, 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 obsessiveness, weirdness. But the bottom line is this, that if we give 
more people, and I don't mean a few entrepreneurship classes, a few project-based learning courses. No, if instead we equip a generation with the opportunities to re-envision, the space to try and fail and try again until they get halfway decent at it, the network where they can collaborate across silos. We're not putting the math kids with the math kids and the design kids with the design kids. You're collaborating together because every Waz needs his jobs, right? You need to put the people together who can actually create thinking because we're not going to do it with people in our department at a university or a large firm. No chance. And not, not within the company, to your point. I, I, there was a very inspirational leader I, I uh, worked for at a, at a company, and I enjoyed how he presented the opportunities and, and the value the company was bringing but it was always connected to this is the most important quarter in the company's history. And everything that inspired then just got this heavy set of bricks jumped on the shoulder well, <laughs> with, with that. None of that matters if you can't get past this quarter and meet the shareholder expectations. In another conversation, we should talk about why that, that model of maximizing quarterly returns um, for shareholders is nonsense and has always been nonsense. Uh, Nick Hanauer has an excellent TED talk about this. He was an early investor in Amazon of all things. And he, he says, look, that's never how value has been created. And it's true. What that leads you to do is to create, and I, I don't mean this in a in a biased way, I, I'm Mexican-American. So when I call it an hacienda economy, remember my great-grandfather actually had a ranch, okay? So we're, we're creating an hacienda economy. In other words, we're creating an economy where we maximize for that quarterly results. We pretend that it was always about greed. We believe these false models, which no economist worth her salt sees in the real world. And guess what? We create an economy of rent-seeking, which is the wonky term for people who get their profits by closing off markets to competition, by stamping out disruption, by innovating only through acquisition, and by using social and government subsidies, our tax dollars, to keep their businesses paying no taxes and dominating their markets with obsolete models. That's where what you get if you maximize for quarterly returns, unfortunately, we've allowed private equity to hard code that into finance. We need to reopen finance. Everything I've said about innovators needs to be true of investment. We need to broaden it so that many more people are able to take risks on something small that they believe in if they've got any capital at all. And then we can pretend we can start to open up capital. And I know this is one more point, so I'll stop myself, but I'll just say it in a word, which is that in a sentence, which is to say that if we really want economic mobility, forget most of the ideas you've heard about forcing it. There's really only two ways to get economic mobility. One is through allowing people to build value of their own. And the other is through giving away um, the Native Americans' lands, which is how uh, most uh, white people in the United States eventually built their intergenerational wealth. And I'm not saying that to make a point about race. I'm saying that to make a point about economics. You either are getting a giveaway or you're creating a value. Those are the ways you create intergenerational wealth. And if we don't drive mobility, we will 
never have dynamism again. We will be that economy with a few people who are rent seekers, who are locking up the game and nobody else able to compete. And that is the death of the American dream. Very positive message there as we begin to wrap Alejandro. <laughs> death of the American dream. No, I'm going to, I'm going to actually uh, start to bring it to a close here. Cause I, I mean, we could talk forever about this. There's no question. And wait, Sean, uh, can I say one thing? Yeah. The please. American dream need not die. Right. And that dream, of course, is all of the world. I'll never forget pre presenting in Kaishari, Turkey and a woman from Syria. You know what her presentation was about? It was slides from Martin Luther King talking about that dream. Right. The Langston Hughes wrote, right. America never was America to me, but America shall be. I left a few words out of his great poem. America is an idea. And that dream is very much a reality. I spend all my time working with people in every part of the world, places like Minsk, Belarus, and the West Bank in Jerusalem. And those are people with opportunity constraints, such as we in the United States, unless we're living on a reservation, don't know. But those ideas aren't really American. It's the power of saying, you know what? I really can dream of a better life for myself and a better world that I can participate in building. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the, the people you're working with all over the place. And you brought it up earlier that we can connect with people through technology. And I, and I think the, the final point that I want to make, and, and Marco can, can chime in as well, just that we, we talked earlier about the, the ability to ha play a role, right? Not be the, the guinea pig, but to, but to be the, the people creating the, the game. And I think there's value and probably tremendous power in multiple people coming together to help define that game, right? To, to be creative and have multiple dreams. It's not just one thing. It's multiple things coming together. One plus one equals, equals three, right? And I think that happens at a personal level as well, not just, not just in building products. Sean, that's beautifully done. In fact, to go back where we started, Building products was always narrow, right? Read built to last. It was always about what Collins calls a big, hairy, audacious goal. It was always about envisioning something, right? If your goal is to build a product, you know, okay, build a product. But that's not the people that create industries, right? And we're all in the end mooching off the people who envisioned a different world because that's the dramatic value creation. And if we have one thing that's great about the country I grew up in, the city I grew up in, New York, it's that we have that belief, right? That it, I can, I don't have to do what my parents did. I can do something differently and I don't have to accept the world that's backwards. When I look at it, I can create a world I believe in. And that idea is very embattled in today's America. But I don't mean that as a dark message. I mean that as a call to action because that idea is worth all of history to fight for. Yeah, and I, I love that. Love the. I love hearing that you hear from the younger generation that uh, they're not going to accept it. You said it slightly differently, but uh, the the passion that we're hearing is tremendous. I urge anyone who wants to be a part of that to get involved in the work we're doing. Cause when you hear someone talk about what they're creating and learn to do it, it makes you realize that what you read in the news is not the only story. There are others and we can make those the dominant ones. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to wrap this conversation in a few words because it it condenses so many different perspectives. I mean, we talked about technology, artificial intelligence, advanced technology, therefore, education. We talk about, in a way, time travel, democratization, and, and all of that. And, and I, I'm going to close with this little controversial death of the American dream, which I think would clearly clarify that it's not the death. But I'm like saying, you need, every time you reinvent yourself, every time you innovate, you are killing something. Something dies so that something new can come. And with this, I don't want to open a can of renaissance here or rebirth because it could be a conversation we could have if you want to come back and do a parallel between technology now and the renaissance uh, that I know you, you have studied. Marco, two words, creative destruction. That's yeah. the only way it's ever happened. And if we don't allow what's old to be to die, then it's just... Oh, it all goes in order to have those things. We need to constantly reinvent them. Excuse me. Which means embracing change and not fighting it. Like it's a bad thing if we stop doing something. It doesn't mean we lose our tradition. We just innovate our tradition. And with this, otherwise we're going to keep going forever and ever. I, I want to thank you for a really, really exciting uh and, and enlightening conversation. I, I believe that people listening to this episode will be thinking, if they are not thinking right now, they didn't pay attention. So please think, share Let's your thoughts with us. <laughs> yeah, share your thoughts with us. And, uh, and keep following us on Redefining Technology because we're never going to stop. Uh, technology is not going to stop and uh, we need to keep changing keep doing it for the right reason that's uh that's what i get out of all this and again it's, alejandro thank you so much it's such a pleasure marco sean you guys are really weird and that's a compliment <laughs> thank you very much uh, well we'll save this the uh the rating scale for later on the, what, what levels are weird but uh i'll hold up my weird meter in a second <laughs> we we're not on video so what's the point? That's right we'll, it'll be behind the yeah. screen well uh, an equal comment uh and uh, compliment back to you alejandro it was a fantastic conversation hope to have you on again and for those listening uh we'll include in the show notes uh ways to get in touch with alejandro if you if you uh, are interested and uh perhaps a few links to resources that uh Alejandro thinks would be helpful for people who want to uh, continue to explore the things we discussed today. So thanks, everybody. Stay tuned uh, for more here on ITSP Magazine. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at Devo.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at BlueLava.net.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Technology Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.